Welcome to 3M's Inside Angle Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore, and with me today, I have Dr. Jeffrey Rose, who's the Chief of Adult Cardiology at the Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute, and Heather Joyner, who's the Director of Health Information Management, both from Atrium Health. Welcome, Dr. Rose. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And welcome, Ms. Joyner. Good afternoon. The context of the conversation is based on this work that we do in healthcare around coding and clinical documentation improvement and the story from Atrium that I understand from colleagues was pretty powerful around that. And it raises the question around why do this work? Why is it important? And then we're going to get into how, how you're doing it and what kind of results you're getting. But I want to start with Heather, if you don't mind, because you could tell me why do you do this work and what's the work that you do with your staff and your department? First and foremost, uh, we do this for the patient. In the day and age of healthcare across a continuum, uh, multiple providers, the diagnoses and the information that follows the patient needs to be accurate. And uh, part of what we do is supporting that process. So, you know, back in the days, I'm an old coder, I've been around for a while, and back in the days, we would just code what the doctor wrote. We didn't really ask any questions. There wasn't really any back and forth, just code what the doctor wrote. And you know, as we've moved from the volume world to the value world, we're measured by external agencies, we're measured internally, patient outcomes. It's more important, even though the gap, there's still a gap between the coding world and the clinical world as far as terminology, it's ever so important to try and close that gap by working together to get the documentation to be as accurate as possible so the coders then can turn around and, and assign the most appropriate codes so whether it's for reimbursement or measurement or simply that the uh, diagnosis that follow the patient are right. And so you have a whole crew of coders who are looking at hospital charts and doing that work, but there's also this thing called clinical documentation improvement. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so we have a, an entire staff of uh, inpatient and outpatient coders, and we also have a very seasoned team of CDI specialists, all nurses who we have a very strong partnership with and uh, work with on a daily basis. And we do that first and foremost through our concurrent coding process where we have teamed up coders and uh, CDI nurses on particular units for particular service lines, cardiac, neuro-oncology, surgery, for example. And the documentation improvement, we call it, Atrium Health is called documentation a team sport, and it absolutely is a team sport. So the coders and the the CDI nurses work together. They work with the nurse navigators. They work with the physicians, preferably while the patient's in-house, to work towards getting that documentation. And it might be identifying one particular area that we can focus on, uh, for example, AMIs, and I know Dr. Rose can talk about that, or COPD or, or other diagnoses where we focus on making sure we get it right. But it's a process where it might be a face-to-face conversation. We have tools that give the coders and the CDI the ability to work on the same platform so they don't have to be necessarily standing next to each other. They can either be remote or just not together and still communicate their findings, their questions, which facilitates that process by which we are trying to get the documentation to be as accurate as possible. So it's really robust. It's, you know, the nurses get to share their skill level as a nurse. The coders get to share their skill as a, as a coder. And everyone learns from the process. I know the physicians have learned more than maybe they've ever wanted to know about the, the coding process, but it's very robust and everyone has their role and it is really a team sport. So, you know, I, I get the idea that we need to 
make sure that we represent step to pay bills, and that's fine. But, you know, at some point, I think that I hear from clinician colleagues, like, you know, they can have a callway conversation, and I can say to somebody else, the patient has congestive heart failure, and they know what I mean, and we're good to go. So, Dr. Rose, you're chief of cardiology. Is that not the case? Why are you in, engaged in this enterprise, and, and why are physicians participating in this work? Well, I think to follow up on, you know, Heather's point, we want to get it right. And, you know, if if we were just taking care of patients in small circles, we could rely upon conversations and you know what I mean and I know what you mean. But that's not how it works. We have to be able to speak in a common language about how sick or how well our patients are. And that has to be codified in ways that are similar between how we're in Charlotte, North Carolina and the North Carolina region down here, but the patients that we're taking care of have to be able to be compared in some way, shape, or form to those in the Pacific Northwest or, you know, in the Northeast. That's the reality of healthcare, and there's a variety of reasons for this. One is we, you know, already talked about sort of the financial aspects in the value-based world, but the other probably more important aspect, at least to me, is sort of the issue of process improvement and care improvement. You know, if we can't speak about it in terms that are standardized and measured and so forth, we don't really allow ourselves the capability to actually get better at taking care of patients. And we've learned this. We know this through clinical registries. We know this through a variety of vehicles that are out there. But so this is an extension of that, uh, in my view, and why I think as a service line leader, it's something that really merits, you know, our attention and our energies. So that sounds like a big shift. So we start a conversation that's talking about the revenue cycle coding world, and now you're shifting it into how you understand standard language around patients and the opportunity for quality improvement. I wonder if, if that's part of the message as you talk to other clinicians about this and if that resonates and if you have any pushback on that. That is what we lead with because, to be candid, as if we're talking about revenue cycle improvement to a number of clinicians, the room is going to empty pretty quickly. You know, for most, that's not what has drawn them into the field. But when we talk about it with the real aspect of the ability to improve care, then we get some buy-in. You know, just to give you a quick example of this, so one of the reasons we were drawn into this a couple of years ago We were quite happy with our performance and the care that we were providing in patients with myocardial infarction, and we knew we were doing well through registries where chart data were abstracted through pretty vigorous processes, but, you know, national registries and so forth, we felt very comfortable with our performance, only to be surprised when we got our data back from Medicare, which is information that all comes through claims-based data, that we didn't look so good. And so there was this discrepancy out there in the public space in terms of our performance from registries versus, you know, how the the payer, if you will, viewed our performance. And it all came back to a, a lot of issues, a lot of gaps that we had, quite frankly, with respect to how we were coding and documenting and so forth. And you'd say, well, Why should we care about that? Well, there are some financial implications to the organization, but also for us to be confident in the care that we're providing and know that it measures up to our colleagues in other areas of the country, we have to have a common way of how we're talking about this. That's just, you know, implicit. 
and we found that we really weren't doing the things that we needed to do in terms of the discipline of how we were characterizing our patients. And it gave us a number of gaps to fix. And we've we've gone through and we have fixed those, and I suppose we'll talk about that later in the podcast. But it was easy to find buy-in among my clinical colleagues when I was able to share with them how Medicare and thus the public viewed our care with respect to a condition that was very close to us, you know, as cardiology practitioners. So you, you saw that gap, recognized, you know, as I was thinking about that, it's like, well, you know, I, as you were just saying, I know the truth in the sense I have the registry, I can see the clinical outcomes and the heck with that external thing. But then I guess we're being held up in the public and they're waving a flag over our heads. And it would be nice to have that congruent with what we know about the patients. And so it's extra work then for me to have to bring that congruence to bear. And I guess that's the work that you guys are engaged in and trying to make that seamless and easy. And so what have you guys done at Atrium to make that easy? Did you have to set up structures, committees, and how do you do that work? We started out a couple years ago simply trying to understand the gap. And so from a coding perspective, we put a hard stop in our system, in the coding system, that a patient with a certain diagnosis would not final bill until it got a second-level review. So that was the beginning of our process to uh, have a as much of a real-time conversation with our physicians around a specific diagnosis at that time. And uh, one of my goals for this process was to build the trust. So I wanted the physicians to trust my team's ability to do their job and code what was in the record. And so through that process, we started baby steps. We started looking at some charts, identifying clearly where we had opportunities. And then we built the process out, not just looking at maybe one diagnosis or one diagnosis on expired patients. We built it out so where we have a pretty robust second-level review process while the patient's in-house and still on the back end if we still need to do it on the back end. So whether it's CDI or concurrent coders or nurse navigators, we built queues where patients were funneled into that nurse navigators could look at real-time. We have the CDIs communicating to the coders and the coders communicating to uh, physician champions. And so, again, this whole team sport approach it just grew kind of organically, but um, really well. And it now, you know, three, four years later, we have a pretty well-run machine that we are able to identify a gap if it still exists, get the physician champion involved, have that peer-to-peer conversation. You know, you were talking about the hallway conversation. So this is kind of this very formal hallway conversation that Dr. Rose or another champion can have with his or her peer. So working on the documentation, so then ultimately it's coded appropriately. So, and we've seen some results from that. And so I don't know, Dr. Rose, if you want to share some of the results of the work we've done on that process. Thanks, Heather. I mean, I think if we look specifically around the gap that got us, you know, starting down the pathway on this work with AMI Care, we've gone from, quite frankly, lowest decile performance, at least in terms of claim space data, to top quartile performance across our organization. And that has been through commitment to this process where through the initiatives that Heather's outlined, we've been able to identify cases in real time, involve our clinical champions, working with our hospitalist team. I think that's an important point to bring into place here because care is based on by teams. 
Uh, it isn't the old days where perhaps one provider would look after a patient throughout that patient's entire hospital course. It's teams of providers taking care of populations of patients. So we really have to have that interdisciplinary communication. So, you know, in putting this in place, we've been able to get real traction in terms of our results. And it's really then served as a springboard for this work to extend even further in our organization. We have other service lines that are beginning to embrace the same kind of approach, the, you know, quote, getting it right. I mentioned before, you know, I think that this has implications with respect to quality assessment and quality improvement. If everybody's got the same sort of baseline, we're all talking about the same populations of patients. A new area for us as an organization, but one we know is very important, is the value space and beginning to have some sense of, well, what does it cost to deliver that care? Well, if we can't really speak to it in terms of measurable units that have some degree of reproducibility, we're going to be totally lost when we start getting into that other important domain of care. So I think the only way an organization can really take a serious approach, a logical approach towards improving value of care is by first defining the elements correctly and putting processes in place to ensure that you're getting it right, you know, at the time of point of care. So back to Ms. Turner on the question, or maybe it's Dr. Rose, so you let me know. You talked about AMIs in that early example. How did you guys select the diagnoses to go after or the patient types to go after? Well, we went after AMI in particular, and the first area that we wanted to look at, you know, again, if we want to use the tried-and-true low-hanging fruit categorization, that was really it for us. So it was an easy way to sort of try out the process by having Heather's team help us find out of patients who uh, did not survive their hospitalization, who was being put into the broad bucket of an MI fatality. And, and clearly, given the nature of that particular clinical condition, there will be patients who do not survive it. But we found that there were a greater number, and a lot of it had to do with the non-STEMI or the type 2 myocardial infarction and so forth. There was uh, a lot of opportunity for improvement in terms of how we as clinicians were describing the clinical care. So we put in place a, a hard stop, as Heather mentioned, that none of those charts, if you will, would go out the door until they were reviewed by a clinician and one of our physician champions. And we were able to find out rapidly, yes, indeed, that was a myocardial infarction, you know, event. So that would go through. If it wasn't, then one of the physician champions would reach out to the physician colleague who had coded or, or had not really documented well and would seek clarification. So it took some work, but as we went forward, we didn't have to do it as frequently because, you know, I'm proud to say there was a great deal of sort of institutional learning around this topic. That is kind of, like he said, a launching pad. And, and other diagnoses we picked, for example, a heart failure was around, again, the 30-day mortality rate or other core measures or anything else where we had a population that we knew we could get our hands around to, again, have this kind of coordinated effort in the same vein. And then we also tapped into what I'll call the controversial diagnoses. I think if you ask anybody across the country, the diagnoses that people are struggling with are acute respiratory failure, sepsis, encephalopathy, shock, AKI, for example. So one of the other things we put in place was a documentation excellence committee, and this committee has been around now for five years. Uh, Dr. Rose happens to be our chair. And 
one of the things we're able to do through that documentation excellence committee is when we identify these diagnoses, a subgroup of that committee, half of whom are physicians, a subgroup gets together and talks about what is Atrium Health's definition of acute respiratory failure? What do we think that 80% of our patients look like present with, for example? So just this past year, we actually published internally our adult and pediatric acute respiratory failure definition because outside of 30-day mortality rates and those sorts of measures, we have payers that are denying payment based on clinical validation where they say the chart does not support the diagnosis that we have submitted for the bill. And so our physicians engaged, as you can see that they are, through this documentation excellence committee, we were able to come up with that definition. And one of my colleagues who manages the denial process has started using that definition as the basis for appealing those denials, and we are seeing those go down. We're seeing a decrease in denials, or we're winning more appeals, perhaps, as well, uh, in the acute respiratory failure space. So, you know, obviously, we can't do everything all at one time, but we know we've got some high target areas, whether it's a measure or whether it's a denial, that we can apply pressure, and sometimes it's through our DE committee, and sometimes it's through other pathways. So that's how we've uh, kind of scaled it. On that point, you know, we can't control what the various payers are going to have as their internal definitions for a particular condition. But we also, on the flip side, we've got over 2,500 physicians in our physicians organization. We can't have 2,500 different definitions based upon sort of clinical perception around common conditions. We have to have some kind of standard language. And by putting that discipline in place and through a clinically-led process, arriving at those standard definitions, that actually gives us a lot of traction back when we are, you know, having to have a conversation with payer A versus payer B versus payer C because we've arrived at a standardization that is based on clinical judgment and is reliably put into place. So it's it's a good place to start from. It doesn't totally get us away from that area, but it sure helps. Yeah, as you guys were describing this, it occurs to me that you probably have a pretty clear idea of how you describe the success of this. I, you know, I can imagine we could count the number of queries as a measure of success, but I heard you say that as the clinicians learned about the questions, it would change the way they were documenting stuff, and maybe a decline in queries would be a measure of success. How do you guys define it? So clinical validation denials from payers is relatively new. So we actually, as we build this program out, we actually see the number of clarifications or queries, we call them clarifications, that we send increasing to get on top of, at the same time we're sending education out, So, which is natural because all of a sudden the education is out there and we're having more conversation because now everyone's aware of this opportunity. So initially the number of clarifications go up, and so as the clarifications go up, we were seeing winning our appeals more, uh, the increased number of winning our appeals. As we go on, yes, the number of clarifications should drop and the number of denials should drop that we don't have to appeal in the first place. So that obviously is definitely one of our one of our metrics. So, you know, one of the things that has sort of evolved as we've progressed down this work, so in the beginning it was very manual and everything was emails and messages in that way and phone calls and so forth. So particularly around the AMI work, we have tremendously less cases, if you will, to chase down or communications to put in place, and I think that that represents learning. But we've also had the opportunity through our EMR to put in some electronic querying systems that query a point of care back to the provider. 
and that are really very seamless in terms of they're just integrated into the workflow. We're all working inside our electronic medical records all the time and delivering care. That's you know reality of you know how we're documenting and so forth. So if we can come up with real-time solutions that are not intrusive, that can ask some very simple clinical questions, that also goes a long way towards satisfying the uh, the concern, if you will, about the particular nature of a condition. So I think it began as a very manual process, and you know now as we've gone a little bit further, we've been able to utilize electronic tools that work well with our electronic medical record to sort of amplify or facilitate this work. Because we've become more efficient in that process, we actually are able to get the data out put it in using, you know, SAS and Tableau. We use systems to do data visualization, and when we're able to share the hard data with physicians and our physician partners, we actually had a group come up with their own metrics, goals they were going to hold themselves accountable to as far as response rates, and in addition to the response rate was a meaningful answer. So I thought that we've made some serious progress, and, and part of that is having an efficient system that we're able to get data out of and then share with our physicians. Because without data, you know, it feels like we're wasting the physician's time. That's definitely not something we want to do. So we've made some uh, headway there as well as far as the groups becoming to a point where they're self-managing with their own metrics. So I hear starting by hand helps you figure out where to go and how to work the process, and then figuring out an automation scheme for information flow and technology helps expand the scope of this so that you can get to more and that has been successful. And I guess the question that in my mind is I hear about ramping up the number of queries that it may be frightening to clinicians at the front line to think about all these questions coming at them when they're trying to take care of patients, but I'm not hearing that there's been an issue with that. Surprisingly, no, and it's not because people all of a sudden start like answering questions, but if you can put tools in the hands of clinicians in real time that make clinical sense, you know, you have the chart open for Mrs. Smith, and a query pops up on the side. Is this cardiomyopathy, congestive cardiomyopathy, ischemic cardiomyopathy, or, or what have you? It takes a second to click the box. And if you don't want to click it, you don't have to. But you can just move on. But I think that people recognize, okay, yeah, I guess we really need to know this. Let me just answer it. We're done. But if I have to open an email message in the EMR and then go find a medical record and then go look through it and make a call, I'm just, I don't have time to do that. And, you know, and I'll delay it until somebody asks me, you know, until I get some kind of emergency message, I have to get it done. That's just the reality of being a busy clinician. But if you can do things in point of care with ease of use that are efficient, you, you will get effectiveness. And I think that that's what we've seen. So where from here for you guys, Ms. Joyner? So really it's scalability. It's what do we go after next, whether it's a diagnosis or a service line. You know, I mentioned before we have concurrent coding. That is something we want to expand. There's a lot of value in, again, coders and CDI working to top of license together. It also financially, from a coding perspective, because the chart's encoded while the patient's in-house, the amount of days between discharge and final bill are reduced, so that's a very healthy metric. Nobody can deny that's a good thing. So it is finding the diagnoses, finding the service lines, finding the physician champions, building our definitions, and continuing this team sport that we have developed at Atrium Health. Dr. Rose. You know, I think that it, the continued 
message within our physician's organization that while every patient is different and every patient has his or her unique needs and so forth, there has to be a capability for us at an organizational level to begin to categorize our patients to some degree. Because, again, from the task of improving quality, improving value, and so forth, we can't do that unless we have a common way of categorizing and classification. And providers have training in this in terms of the scientific method. And this aspect of clinical science is in its early, early days. People need to recognize that. But they also need to recognize that it's critically important. You know, healthcare in the United States costs too much and it's just not reliably effective. And there are myriad reasons for that. But one of the elements is we just have to be better stewards of our resources. And in order to do that, we have to have a common language for how we're applying care. And we at least have found that that message seems to resonate when it's said in that manner. If this is a conversation about revenue cycle and so forth, Yes, that's a dividend, that's a byproduct, and it's important for the health of any organization to be, again, efficient in its operations, but that can't be what one leads with. And quite honestly, the other part is perhaps more important, I think, in the long run, and that's improving the quality and the value of our care. Dr. Rose, Ms. Joyner, I want to thank you for your time today and the wonderful conversation. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for uh, the invitation. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.